0: All righty, let's go ahead and get started, shall we? Uh, let's see here, what am I looking for? There we go. All righty, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 tonight. If you want to go ahead and open over there, Hebrews 2. Um, look at verse 5 through the rest of the chapter. So we'll read that here in just a minute. Hebrews chapter 2. So by the time that Hebrews is written, people had started... I want, you, I, wanna, I want you to see if this sounds familiar in today's world, okay? By the time Hebrews is written, there's this phenomenon happening where people have started taking... Different parts of different religions, and making their own kind of individual religion. So you may have a Jew who hears things about angels. I mean, how how frequent? You don't have to be specific about this, but how frequent do you think the the word angels or the idea of angels is, is mentioned in the Old Testament? Pretty frequently, right? We're pretty frequently. Um, so by the time Hebrews is written, you have people who are Jews who have started taking different ideas because they're living in a time when the Gentiles, the Romans in this case, and the pagans, depending on where they are, but, but specifically the Jews in Caesarea to whom the book is written, they're living in a Roman society, Right? And so they keep hearing about all these different Roman gods. Um, They hear things like angels have wings. Well, some of the Roman gods have wings. So maybe they're talking about the same thing. And then it kind of morphs. And these people had, had eventually gotten to the point where they had morphed pagan beliefs about gods and goddesses and demigods and all these other ideas. They had morphed them into these ideas about angels. Now does that happen today? Have you ever met a person who quotes quote unquote's a Christian, right? At least claiming to follow the God of the Bible. We'll, we'll leave whether or not they do or you know, to, to the to a different discussion. But a person who's claiming to follow the God of the Bible, but at the same time, like for instance, a friend of mine put on Instagram today a picture of the moon and said that she would be taking a hiatus from social media for this moon cycle so that she could reset her chakras. She's, she claims to be a part of the Christian movement. Y'all have met people like that, right? Christians or quote-unquote Christians. People who claim Christianity who have a infatuation with the zodiac signs. Y'all ever heard about that before? Or an infatuation with Different, you know, they, they have um, now it's not so much, okay, but but first when when yoga started to become a thing in America, now there's there's millions of yoga studios that don't believe that don't teach the, the doctrines of yogis. But when it first started, yoga is a religion, and so when you started going to yoga studios you'd start realizing that this is, you know, part of a religion. And then eventually now they've gotten rid of all that in most of them. Um, but that's what's happening in the first century. You have people who have just become confused, not because of um, malpractice or anything like that, but just because they, they just weren't paying attention or they, they just, you know, they just were misled or they got confused about some things. And so at that point, angels had become this kind of half-God type thing, right? And so that's why the Hebrews writer uses angels first to differentiate between Christ and the Old Testament. Now, he never says anything about angels that's untrue, okay? He never assumes... There's a lot of assumptions that happen in the book of Hebrews, especially in the first few chapters. We'll talk about those in a minute. But he never assumes that angels are characterized by the false things that people had started believing. But, it's beneficial for him to use something that is commonly understood, at least to some degree, commonly talked about in society, especially in the religious society that he's writing to, to try to get his point across. It's it's as if... If you're going to study the Bible with someone, we start our fishers of men course tomorrow night, right? So um, if you're going to study the Bible with someone, you need to determine do they believe in God? If they believe in God, we're not going to start with the ontological argument or the cosmological argument or something like that, right? We're going to start with, all right, we both believe in God. Now, who is that God, right? And so that's what he's doing. They, they all agree upon angels to some degree, and so he starts with that. Now in chapter 1, he starts talking about angels, but first he talks about the nature of Jesus Christ just on the forefront. He assumes that everyone who reads this book believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, believes that Jesus Christ really lived. You know, there's an interesting thing that happens in, in the New Testament. No one ever questions that Jesus lived, right? All the people that are trying to detract from Christianity, right? even even the historical people, outside of the Bible writings, none of them ever question whether or not Jesus lived. Nowadays, it's become pretty popular to question that and say Jesus never lived. But the fact is, all of the historians that actually study the history say, yes, He did. Now, we may differ on who He was. We may differ on what He did. But, Historians nowadays agree Jesus lived. So he assumes that these people believed Jesus lived, believed he was the Christ, believed that he was God, and so now he just starts in on angels. Now chapter 2 starts with this, what we talked about last time, the, one of the five warnings. There's five warnings in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 4. Chapter 10 and then chapter 12 so chapter 2 3 6 10 and 12 there's five warnings in the book of hebrews 2 3 6 10 and 12 and all of them are kind of building on one another so as we go through we'll see the other ones but he starts chapter 2 with this this warning that since verse 2 of chapter 2 since every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution we talked about it wasn't that every single one received what they deserved because that may not be just, right? Justice and mercy have to, go, have to go together. And so a person may have, like in Solomon's case, had all these wives. The just thing to do would be hold him accountable for that. But the merciful thing to do was to wink at it or to overlook it. Acts 17.30, right? So he starts with this warning and then chapter 2, verse 5. Um, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. alright so let's take that section first chapter 5 or chapter 2 verse 5 it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come to whom did or who did God put over the world to whom did God put the world in subjection? Well, think about all the way back at the creation. Who did He put, in sub, who, who did he put the world in subjection to? Jesus wasn't there, right? Adam, right? He, want, he wanted Adam to do what to the garden? Keep it, tend it, work it, be fruitful and multiply, right? And He gives subjection to everyone. Or to all mankind, rather. Over the whole earth. Right? So, it was Adam's job to take care of the garden. And everything in the garden was under subjection to him. Now, look at verse number 5 again. For it was not to the angels that God subjected subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. The world to come is the world, verse number 4. While God also bore witness as signs, by signs and wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will, is the world still in subjection to mankind? Supposed to be, right? We're still supposed to be taking care of it. Um, but there's a problem, and that problem is that even during the Christian age, we're supposed to be in, be over the world, and it's supposed to be in subjection to us. There's a problem between now and what was set at the garden. And that is, we're not in the garden anymore. Right? So, look down at verse number 8. We do not see everything in subjection to Him. So, let's, let's just follow the pronouns here, okay? Verse number 6. It was testified somewhere. Now, pause for, for just a second. Notice all the ways that the, the Hebrews writer talks about God's Word. In chapter 1, he says, God says, or God told Jesus, or God told the angels something. Chapter 2, uh, verse number 6, right here, he says that it's written down somewhere. Chapter 2, verse 11, somebody read that one for me. Chapter 2, verse, well, verse 11 and 12. Chapter 2, 11 and 12. Alright, so chapter 2 verse 12 is a quotation from Psalm 22, okay? So Jesus, in chapter 1, the Hebrews writer says that God says this. In chapter 2, he says someone said this. In chapter 2, he says Jesus said this. In chapter 3 verse 7, he says the Holy Spirit said this. So, in the first three chapters of the book of Hebrews, he quotes four different Bible passages, and say says God said it, the Son said it, the Holy Spirit said it, and somebody said it. He never, at least in the first few chapters, he never says who actually wrote it. Does he? Never says David wrote Psalm twenty-two and he said this. Right? It's always God, the Holy Spirit, someone wrote this. Why do you think that's important in a book that? doesn't have any name attributed to it in the text. He never wrote down who wrote this book, right? He never says this is Luke or this is Paul or this is whoever wrote it, right? Because he's trying to set down the understanding that the Bible, well, at least the Scriptures at that point, right? The Bible was not the Bible yet, right? He's trying to set down that the Scriptures are superior to whoever's writing it. Okay? So, why does he not say so-and-so wrote this book? Because he's trying to lay down the fact that the Scriptures are sufficient. He's going back over and over and over and over and over again to the, to the Old Testament to prove his point, and he's not pulling the, the, the character of the person in that wrote it, or you know, pulling a, a trump card, as it were, and saying, well, Moses said this, or Abraham said this, right? He's just saying, it's God's Word. It's all God's Word. Okay, So, it has been testified somewhere, verse 6, what is man that you're mindful of him? Alright, let's follow the pronouns. What is man that you're mindful of him? Who's that talking about? Who's the him? Man, right? The son of man that you care for him. In, In Hebrew writing, now this is a citation from the Old Testament. In Hebrew writing, there's this thing called Hebrew parallelism. You don't have to remember that. But, basically, if the Old Testament says something twice that sounds similar, all it's doing is saying exactly the same thing twice. Who do we think of when we think of the Son of Man? Jesus, right? The interesting thing is that the term Son of Man, when referring to Jesus, is only found a handful of times in the Old Testament. The term Son of Man is mentioned over 80 times talking about just humanity. Okay? So, this is a Hebrew parallel passage saying the same thing twice. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or, what is the son of man, same thing, that you care for him? So he's still talking about mankind. Right? Alright, verse number 7. You made him, mankind, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him, with glory and honor, mankind. Putting everything in subjection under His feet, mankind, now in putting everything in subjection to mankind, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. So he's all, this whole passage is talking about who? Us. Us, right? Us. Now the problem with saying that is Jesus is, is one major thing. Somebody get Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. All power is given to me. So that's present tense, right? All power is given to me on heaven and on earth. And then the Hebrews writer says, we don't see everything in subjection to Him. See, there's a problem there, right? Can't be talking about Jesus because Jesus Himself said everything is under His his subjection. So, he's, He's talking about mankind. Now, the problem is, God gave everything to us to be in subjection to us. However, what would cause us to not see everything in subjection to us? Sin. What caused us to leave the garden? Sin, right? How's the world not in subjection to us? Well, think about this. You ever read about any volcanoes in the Garden of Eden? How about hurricanes? Tornadoes? Ice storms? Blizzards? None of that. That all started at the flood, okay? Or after the flood. So while they're in the Garden of Eden, especially while they're in the Garden of Eden, everything's in subjection to Him. But then there's one thing that comes that causes the world to now, even though we're supposed to be taking care of the earth, it's not in subjection to us anymore, right? The earth can quickly overpower us in a heartbeat, right? What's that one thing that caused that change? Sin, right? Sin. Mankind's sin kicked us out of the garden. So then, look at verse number 9. So we see this. Everything's in subjection to mankind. Everything's put under His feet in subjection. He left nothing outside of His control. But at present, we don't see this. But what we do see is Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now, he's made the point that, well, look back at chapter 1, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit inherit, inherit salvation? Who's more important, the, the served or the servant? The served, right? So he's already made the point that mankind is superior to angels. But at the same time, what are some ways that we're not superior to the angels? Raise your hand if you can kill one hundred eighty-five thousand Assyrians, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was saying. We don't, we don't have their power by any stretch of the imagination, right? Also, where are angels in the presence of God? What what direction do we usually talk about when we're talking about? When we, the direction toward God, up. He made for a little while Jesus lower than the angels. Not in power, not in name, or anything else. It means the angels are where God is. Mankind is not where God is. Right? And he said that back in chapter 2, um, verse number 7. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Mankind isn't isn't where God is. And so, verse 9, we see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus came to us. What's so special about Jesus compared to angels? Angels didn't come to us the same way Jesus did. And that's the point of chapter 2. Okay? So we see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. He's the perfection, crowned with glory and honor. In verses 6-8, through eight, He says this is how mankind was meant to be. In um, Crowned with glory and honor, verse number 7, mankind was meant to be over all of the earth. Mankind was meant to be in the Garden of Eden. Mankind was meant to be sinless but we don't see that what we do see is Jesus who took on the form of mankind who was sinless who was the perfection of what, we were, what we're supposed to be right? now in one sense it is very possible that mankind can become like Jesus In another sense, it's impossible that mankind can become like Jesus, right? We can become like Jesus after the fact. But the difference is, Jesus lives a sinless life his entire life, right? Mankind can live a life that is sinless after a point, because we're all sinful, right? We all hit an age of accountability where now we're guilty of our sins. And we commit sins. And Jesus never did. So that's the difference. So what he's trying to point out is, mankind is, yes, superior than the angels. But in the sense, there's, he's not. Because we failed to do what we were meant to do. And Jesus came and fulfilled everything that we were meant to do in the first place. He was the person that we were supposed to be. He was the kind of person, rather, that we were supposed to be. Now look at verse 10. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. Alright, it was fitting. Why was it fitting? There's three reasons given in the rest of the chapter of why it's fitting. How did did Jesus become like us so that He could become perfected? Because that's the point. Right, right. We'll talk about that here in just a second. Yeah, He's the, the perfection of everything we were meant to be. And... He's also special. In this chapter, he sets up the rest of the book because he mentions a lot of different things that he's going to re-mention later on um, in, in the book of Hebrews. So look at verse number 11. He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Does anybody have a different translation? Does anybody have like New International Version? Or... Um, What other translation might have it? Uh, Verse eleven. Does anybody have NIV for verse eleven? All right, read verse eleven in NIV. All right, so ESV has of one source, NIV has of the same family. They're they're basically the same thing, right? If you're of the same source, you're in the same family, right? So, the first thing that he did was become part of this family of mankind. Look at verse number 11 again. That that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So he quotes all these different passages about... Alright, anyways. Sorry, that door's going to drive me nuts. Alright. Um, he quotes all these different passages that Jesus says things like, my brothers. He, he's part of the family. What's so important about God becoming part of our family? Well, eventually what would happen? We would become part of whose family? God's family, right? So it's kind of, it's this back and forth. He becomes part of the family of mankind, And then mankind becomes the part of His eternal family, right? So there's this back and forth here. It's not a contradiction. It's just different ways of looking at it. Alright? Yeah, go ahead. Remember I said earlier back about the birth of a Christian? That we are all born the same way from the same womb. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, right, exactly. So, but here he's not talking about the family of God. He's talking about the family of mankind, right? So, what's so special about Jesus coming, not as an angel, but as part of mankind? It's the fact that Jesus is, what's wrong with you, buddy? All right. The fact is that Jesus is now... Boy? That didn't work. Alright. Um, the fact is that now Jesus is, is like us in that He's part of flesh and blood. And that's going to come up here in just a minute. Alright? So He becomes part of the family of mankind. Then, somebody read verses 14-16 through 16 for me. Hebrews two fourteen through sixteen. Alright, verse number 11, he says, He who sanctifies or makes holy and those who are sanctified or, or made holy all have one source. What does it mean to be sanctified? Or to be made holy? What does that mean? Set aside. set aside, set apart, right? And a lot of people think that that means legalism. Because a lot of times it is. Like, for instance, one time I was talking to someone and uh, and he and I were having a difference of opinions about something he he was very staunchly opposed to something and it wasn't anything bad by any means in my opinion but he was, he was very staunchly opposed and, and I said I, I disagree I don't think we need to make a big deal about this I don't think we need to fight about this it's perfectly fine and he said well all I want to do is be holy and you just don't want to be holy and I said well okay that's fine you don't know me very well and, you know, this is on Facebook, and I'm not going to deal with it. But a lot of times holiness is used as like a holier-than-thou type thing, right? If you want to be holy, you'll do this, right? Now, is there, a, is there a sense in which those who are set apart need to be different from the world? Yes. By every, by, yes, right? We're a peculiar people. We're a different people. Exactly, exactly. And that's not what he's saying, is it? This is an onward action. The person who sanctifies and who is sanctified. That the person who is sanctifies is an onward action. It's it's perfect tense in the Greek, which means it's the person who's continually sanctifying. It's a it's a continuous road, right? But then look down at verse number 14. Since therefore the children share in like flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So he's becoming one with us, or we're becoming one with him, by we're becoming holy. And he is holy, right? And then verse 14 says that he became like us because we have what that he didn't have before he came? Flesh and blood, right? And then... Look down at verse number 15. Well, verse 14, sorry. He took the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In the Old Testament times, and really today, people are terrified of death, Right? that's what he's saying we, we were kept in a slavery he's not talking about the Old Testament in some places like in the book of Romans he talks about the Old Testament as being slavery and the New Testament being freedom but then at the same time Paul says that being a Christian is like being a slave to Christ Right. so these, they're not contradictions they're just different ways of looking at it in different settings what he's saying here is he's not talking about the Old Testament he's talking about in the Old Testament times we were terrified of death why? Can you point to all the passages in the Old Testament that talk about Abraham's bosom and, and heaven and the afterlife? There's none, right? They had a, a vague understanding that there would be something else. But that's it. And then, over time, they had started thinking that that something else was Abraham's bosom. They started calling it that. And then Jesus tells a true story about what Abraham's bosom really is, right? Right? In Luke 15. They had no idea. All they knew that there was something there. They didn't know what it was. And so they're terrified of death. But now as Christians... Um, you know, that's why I don't take flu shots. No, it's not why I don't take flu shots. I don't take flu shots because flu shots give you the flu. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> they did me. Anyways. No, uh, I don't take flu shots because I'm just... Uh, I hate doctors. Anyways. So, um, so in New Testament times, we're not scared of death anymore. At least Christians aren't, right? If you kill me, you are doing me a favor. You might be doing yourself a favor too, but you're definitely doing me a favor, right? So we're not worried about, in fact, what, is God, what does uh, Paul say? For to me to live is Christ, and to die is what? If I stay here, I can help people get to heaven. If I leave and I die, I get to go to heaven. This is a win-win situation in my opinion, right? That's what he's saying. That Okay, Jesus came to become part of the family of mankind. Two, because when he came and became part of the family of mankind, he experienced what everyone was terrified of. Death. Then verse 17... In, in fact, at the cross, do you think that Jesus was scared in John 17 when he's praying before he's arrested? Yeah, right. He has, he has drops of sweat that were like as blood. Now we're not going to get into the differences of opinions on what that means, but he's he's terrified in John 17, right? That made him in the Hebrews writer's mind, that made him qualified to, to do something for us because he had experienced that. Verse 17, Therefore, he had, to, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and the servants of God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted now he's talking about death he's not talking about Matthew 6 and tempted in salvation he's talking about now Jesus Christ has come to earth he has become a part of the family of mankind he has he has felt what it's like to be flesh and blood he's felt what it's like to be terrified of death And so because of that, he is qualified to be our high priest because he's been tempted. What temptation, outside of Matthew 6, what temptation did Jesus have that would have stopped him from dying? Matthew 26, verse 53, he says, I could call 10 10 legions of angels, right? The song says 10,000 angels because it sounds a lot prettier, but it's really 10 legions of angels. Um, but that's the temptation. He could have stopped it. What happens if Jesus stops the cross? Right. So he was tempted to do that. He says, I could, I could make this stop right now, but I'm not going to. Right? So he's talking about the death. Which angel has died for mankind? I'm not talking about died like for salvation. I'm just talking about died in, in battle or something. None. We have no indication that angels ever die in the Bible. There's no, there's no reason to think that they do. We don't ever see like, you know, a funeral for Gabriel or anything. We have no indication that angels ever die. And the point is, Jesus thought it was so strange. Jesus thought mankind was so special that when He came, He didn't come as an angel. He came as one of us and He went through physical death when He didn't have to. Now that makes Him the high priest. He's not even talking about the death that brings salvation yet. He's just talking about the physical death that Jesus went through. And He says, the physical death that Jesus went through alone means that Jesus is greater than the angels. Yeah, go ahead. Right. And they're still alive. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. So that's really, I mean, he goes through, in chapter one, he talks about the fact that no angel has ever died for mankind. That no angel is coming back from the dead for mankind. Or that angel, no angel has ever died for salvation of mankind. But chapter 2, he's just talking about physical death. And he says, you essentially, you paraphrasing, you can't find an angel that has died a physical death for mankind. But Jesus thought we were so important that he was willing to go through the physical death. Outside of any spiritual ramifications of that, he went through the physical death, and now now we have the ability to, to not be under that lifelong slavery and fear of death anymore, because what happened? He was raised from the dead, right, and then all the passages first corinthians fifteen, "If he was raised from the dead, we'll be raised from the dead, like him first Thessalonians right all these different passages. The Hebrews writer is assuming that he not only these readers not only have a good portion of the Old Testament, but they that they have some indication of the New Testament. I mean, by the time 65, 63, when it's written, some of the books have already been starting to be written. They already have a pretty, I mean, the church has been established now for 24 years by 63, and so you have a fairly good, you know, fairly good history and people learning and that sort of thing and so he assumes that they understand these things and that's why it's so deep and that's why it's so hard to understand because he just he's this is not a bare bones type of teaching right this is this is deep and and really it gets down to some of the the more difficult things so chapter 3 next week we'll talk about how Jesus is greater than Moses. And he kind of leaves it at that. Chapter 1, he talks about how Jesus is better than the angels because he's God and because he died for our sins. Chapter 2, he talks about because he's, he's felt death. He's felt physical death, right? And then chapter 3, he just leaves angels all together and starts talking about Moses. Um, so that's what we'll pick up next week. Any questions or anything like that? All righty. Let's go ahead and have a little break, and then uh, we'll get started with our Devo here in just a little bit. Thank you all.